0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, that was a really fun thing to do with the Plum Village community. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, there were a thousand people on that call from all over the world, plus the Sangha there. Mm. It makes me feel very happy that there are so many people who are dedicated to the path of awakening all over. Uh, So dedicated they would sit for two hours during a ceremony like that (laughs) online, right? So, uh, dear friends, there uh, are two arms of our practice uh, and um, at least this is a way that Fern and I have um, developed a language of describing aspects of our practice as two arms. This is not to be confused with the two wings that Thay would often present, being shamatha and vipassana, of the two wings of meditation, two wings of the bird of meditation. This is not that. These two arms of the practice are... Uh, a way of um, expressing the teachings on diligence and the the first arm of the practice is uh, well it 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 holds within it all of the different ways in which we practice to embrace our reactivity Uh, the way that we calm our strong emotions the way we care for seeds of suffering in our consciousness Um, and that could also be extended to the way that we help others do that as well right So all the work that goes into uh, all the attention and care that goes into embracing and transforming, uh, understanding, caring for the seeds of suffering in us and in the world. That's like one arm of the practice. Then the other arm of the practice is the way that uh, we cultivate stability, at least that's one way of saying it. So there's an embrace of reactivity on the one hand, and the other is the cultivation of stability, which you could see is like the 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 complementary gesture. And the cultivation of stability is all of the practice that we we. Um, undertake to wake up seeds of happiness in us and to nourish seeds of happiness in us, but also to wake up and nourish seeds of happiness in other people and other beings as well. And our practice really needs both of these arms. To rely solely on the characteristics of one of these arms and to ignore or neglect the other uh, will lead to a great imbalance, which will cause us to come up short in our practice. Uh, that is our practice that is has, a, has an aim, right? The aim of the alleviation of suffering, the transformation of suffering, right? Um, So there's the caring for our suffering on the one hand, but there's also the caring for our happiness on the other. And the two things must be there together. In fact, when we begin to do this practice wholeheartedly and really drop into it, not just the ideas about it, but really drop into it, we will experience that the two arms of practice are really not separate from each other, uh, that our suffering and our happiness have a lot to do with each other. And once once we enter into those experiences where the two arms are becoming one body, uh, Our orientation towards many things in our life will change. In uh, other occult and spiritual traditions in the world, there is a threshold that one crosses in the practice where the purpose and the meaning of one's life shifts from one oriented to one's own well-being to one that in actually encompasses everyone and we we cross that threshold at some point in our practice and what i mean by that is well, this is sort of esoteric really i'm sorry but what i mean by that is not that we intend or take up an action because it rationally makes sense to help everyone, but that our energy flows naturally, openly through that door. We don't even see the distinction between ourselves and the other. We can acknowledge on the surface those things, but deeper down, those distinctions have no meaning. My talk today is going to focus on orienting us to that threshold, to that 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 uh, that place in our practice. Um, unfortunately, to do so, I have to pretty much stay on one side of the door. <laughs> I have to use uh, words and concepts and stories and such that, that are all about things being different from each other. Um, but it's when, when all these stories and concepts help crack open our heart and orient us in a particular way to the space that's there that we begin to sense what lies on the other side of that threshold where the ups and the downs don't matter, where the rights and the lefts, the betters, the worst, I like, I don't like, the suffering and the happiness, where they are one. So uh, last night someone asked a question that I, I, uh, I, I answered indicating something about this topic. Um, the ultimate dimension and how we are really not ever separated from what we sometimes call the flow, right? That, that fully invigorating, fully embodied a sense of being a part of life and being in the flow of it, not being a separate entity and not having a small purpose but being deeply connected and um so i'm using all of these words on the one i have to be on the one side right but you know what where i'm I'm pointing like that we're actually never separate from that like the wave and the water are never separate Uh, and um One of the ways that we're never separate from that is um, is expressed in um, some of the teachings we already looked at. Uh, if you remember the image of the tree. And at the base of the tree and where the roots of the tree are reaching down is, uh, I'm backing up one drawing here. Yeah, let's get the light right. Okay. Is the store consciousness, Alaya consciousness, right? And Alaya consciousness represents all of the, um, Habit, energy, conditioning, memories—all uh, of the raw possibilities of life—and in that manifestation, store consciousness. This is this is not what we are conscious of in our waking life. It's everything that gives the basis for what we experience in our waking life. It's on the other side of that threshold, really, and. In store consciousness, nothing is determined. Nothing is already set to be this way or that way, to be positive or negative or wholesome or unwholesome. It's just a possibility, right? It's a seed. Remember the the word seed is used a lot in our tradition. The seed of mindfulness, cultivate it, grow it strong, have the seed of suffering, the seed of happiness. In alaya consciousness, that word seed it represents not a thing, but a possibility, a potential. It's really important. It's also the same in our brains. You often think that like, the seed of anger is like anger is a thing in you, and your brain might be wired to, to go in a certain direction. And we all have the seed of anger, we say. It's not really like that. We all have the possibility of anger, the potential for anger, but it doesn't manifest in the same way in any two of us. It's not, it's not a thing, right? It's a potential. It's really important to know that and the brain works that way too. Everyone's brain uh, will express its neur- neurons firing in a different way when, when we're angry and especially across cultures and different lands. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, the, the research that's been done like this really opens your your heart and your mind to, to wonder at oh, what it is we actually think we know. <laughs> its possibility its raw potential store consciousness has this incredible raw potential to manifest anything and everything limitless possibilities so in this in this work here we are again of working the two arms of our practice Every breath, every moment of our lives, in our waking life, which is here, above the surface of the earth, the tree, the branches of the tree, and our interactions with life around us through our senses and our mind and how it processes all of that, that's our waking life. Every breath and each moment in our waking life we are sending. We are sending the print of that experience down through the roots of the tree into Alaya consciousness, store consciousness. You see those arrows moving in, and then the mind will print it down. Alaya also streams up to try to inform and help and protect us, often in a very unskillful way, making us very unsteady or uncertain or doubtful or sad or whatever. But it always its intention is always to try to help us. But this print of each moment of our life goes down into Alaya consciousness. Each breath, each time we are successful in calming ourselves and bringing ourselves home, we are sending that energy down through the roots of our being into Alaya consciousness, to that potential, that possibility of what might happen next what might happen in the future. Right? What this means is that the way that we handle ourselves each moment of our life has an effect on the future. So the, the raw energy that is stored in alaya consciousness, those seeds, those potentials, they are what they are right now, right? That potential is strong possibly because we've been watering it a lot say we're really frustrated and angry with things that are happening in the world around us and we've been watching those news articles and following those things and talking with our friends and getting all fired up in our minds and all of that is an activity which is watering the seed of frustration and anger of discontent inside of us and inside the great potential for everyone as well right? As Alaya is, belongs to all of us. So when that possibility is strong, right, that it can rise up, right? It's because it's been watered. Now, it is what it is right now. Because of all the actions that I have undertaken, my frustration is Strong, that seed is strong in me. It doesn't take much for you to touch it and it to boom and fill my waking life with its energy. And unlike a tree, which might do that very slowly over the course of a season, a mental formation like that strong one can take over in a flash <laughs> and and it only takes a half a second. And now I am distraught, right? So that is what it is. That stage has been set. Those conditions are already laid, right? But what happens in our waking consciousness is we're constantly feeding those conditions, you see? So I've been feeding my frustration, my discontent, my anger. And so it's very strong. But if I start to feed something else, right, if I go on a retreat, if I make part of my daily practice to really calm and de-stress, if I, if I undertake a practice of embracing certain strong uh, uh, stories of suffering in my life and understanding them and healing them and reconciling them. If I if I um, water seeds of joy day in and day out, right? So that's a different kind of food, which is going down into store consciousness, and it will change what's going to happen in the future. So because I've already watered my discontent, all you got to do is tap it and it's going to explode in me. But if I have already watered the seed of ease and joy and peacefulness in me, all you have to do is tap it and it comes up. You see, it's that simple. We cannot change our reactivity that's already been mm, set up, conditioned in us. We can't stop those strong things that are already to come up from coming up. They're going to come up, but what we can do is change the way they're going to come up in the future. So when the difficult energy arises in us, the way we take care of it and help it to find its peace, its rest, its understanding, then goes down and prints itself so that in the future, when the seed is touched, right, it doesn't rise up with the same force that you had before. Now it rises up with some of the print of our practice in it and we transform the future. Yeah. mm. When we begin to do this work of um, our practice, which involves the two arms, when a seed of suffering arises in us, we take the time, we take the space that we need to hold it, to acknowledge it, to recognize it, to calm it down if it needs to calm down, so that it can, so we can really meet its needs. It's not a kind of suppression, like stuffing your your strong feelings down, it's a welcoming. You're just not going to run around behind it. You're not gonna be dragged around behind whatever your frustration or anger or sadness or depression want. Instead, you're going to recognize that they have come up and make a space for them, like an embrace, right? And that's the, the, the embracing the reactivity in us. That's that one arm of the practice. As we do that practice, and as we do the other practice of taking the time to notice joy and beauty in our lives and cultivate the wholesomeness and the happiness in our life right we will naturally begin to see the overlap of the two right these two arms arise out of the same shoulders chest and body right it's it's really it's really coming together um i used to think about this as um a lot because of Thay's earlier teachings before he got into saying mud and lotus, he used to say compost and rose. And uh, he said like the compost in the garden is is the very basis for the manifestation of the rose. Uh, so we begin to realize the interbeing nature between our suffering and our happiness. Um, you'll notice that part of this practice is relearning the way of holding your suffering so instead of trying to get rid of your suffering you're making space for it isn't that interesting right there's a part of us which doesn't want to suffer that's natural normal of course but the practice asks us not to run away from it but to make a space for it so we relearn our relationship with the suffering that is already kind of a transformation and sometimes we need to be very clear with ourselves that that's what we're going to do <laughs> because our suffering has a righteousness to it. And it seems like that is the right path to follow. <laughs> so I challenge you to challenge yourself. And for me, the, the word, these words like this are, are what have helped me over the years. To see that I have the habit energy to go down the path of suffering which means to walk further and further into an escalation of suffering. And I don't want to do that. So I tell myself, no, Michael, don't walk down the path of suffering here. You know where that leads you. You know that leads you deeper into suffering. Instead, make a space for your suffering to have a home, talk to it, be kind to it, be sweet to it. And I do, I call on my patience and my loving kindness, and I have conversations with my suffering. And I think I learned this from Thay, too. You you all who have watched Thay's Dharma talks, you know, he will say things like, oh, my dear suffering, I see you there. Don't worry, I will hold you. I will take care of you. Right? So tender and so sweet. There are times when my suffering will listen to that tenderness and sweetness. And there's other times where I have to, like, actually restrain it a little. Like, hey, 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 Michael, Michael, no, you really don't want to go down that road. (laughs) Let's sit down. Let's sit down. Okay, sitting's not good. Let's go for a walk. Okay, let's go run. (laughs) And, 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 And move this energy a little bit so that then we can calm down a little more and understand what's going on, right? But I have to be clear. I'm not going down the path of suffering. I'm turning in a different direction towards caring for my suffering instead of following it, I'm now making space for it. Hmm. You know, when you fight with your loved one, oh, I shouldn't, I mean, none of you fight with your loved ones, of course. <laughs> when you fight with your loved ones, if you if it happens a lot, or it happens somewhat regularly, or like, once every so often in a very predictable way with the same pattern, at a certain point, the thought is going to arise in your mind. Maybe this means we don't belong together. <laughs> we keep fighting like this. It must mean we don't belong together. You can say that with a loved one. It's like a spouse or a friend or something like that. It's hard to say that with a parent or a child, but you're still tempted to go there, right? Well, if you ever get to that point, I've gotten to that point many times in my life. If you ever get to that point where you're tempted to to want to draw a line and say, enough of this, I'm not going to do this anymore, right? Be careful, be careful. Suffering and happiness are made of each other. If you want to cut off the suffering, you'll also cut off the happiness. And I've witnessed many people in different kinds of relationships cut off the suffering, and they are the most unhappy people for years afterwards. They cut off the suffering, they also cut off the happiness. We have to be careful. Now, th- th- I'm not saying don't change the shape of your relationship, or don't strive to transform your behaviors of the other's behaviors and, and such, right? But be wary that you are not trying to uh, uh, run away from something so important as the compost, which makes the rose grow. But I only want the roses. (laughs) I just want the flowers. (laughs) Uh, Too bad. (laughs) You can only have the flowers if they're plastic. You better like plastic if you just want the flowers. <sighs> Any living flower is going to rot. It's going to fall apart, right? And that's what it came from, too. <laughs> and we have to acknowledge that in our relationships. Hmm. Please don't take what I'm saying here as an indication that you should, as I said in the beginning of this retreat, forbear suffering when it's a raging elephant, right? You can step out of the way. But don't step out of the way and like push the whole thing away and say, I'm just not touching that anymore. It's a seed of suffering in you. How can you not touch it? It's a seed of happiness in you. How can you not care for it? Right? You know, cut yourself out of the picture. You'll be the most miserable person on the planet right so these tools of learning to care for ourselves these two arms in the practice are so important so important um, i'd like to um ask you to sit comfortably and i want to do a short guided meditation hope that's okay um, i'll use a bell on my end as well Breathing in, I am aware that I'm breathing in. And breathing out, I'm aware that I'm breathing out. I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. I feel my in-breath happening in my body. I feel my out-breath happening in my body. I'm gathering myself into this place, into this moment with the in-breath. I'm releasing any anxiety or trepidation or anything I don't need on the out-breath. Breathing in, gathering, breathing out, releasing. As you continue to breathe in and breathe out, becoming aware more and more of the space of your body, draw yourself inwards to a kind of a heart-mind space in which you can imagine, imagine a human being, a living image of a human being in which you'll be able to see the infant, the young child, the youth, the adult, the aged one a human being with five limbs and a trunk, a human being with a body, heart, mind, a spirit of life in it, growing, learning, a human being who will pass through all the various stages of life. See the human being as having experienced birth, as growing and growing from a child into an adult, as having illness, as crossing the threshold of death. You see the human being's body from birth through maturity, aging and death. Uh, As you breathe in and out, see this image of a human being through the course of their life as having been shaped and formed by many other beings, shaped and formed by mother and father, shaped and formed by siblings, by family, by friends, Breathing in and out, how many other beings have been a part of how this human being has taken form, has learned to live and grow. Breathing in and out, see this human being through the course of their life, having been shaped and formed by their environment, by the very elements of earth, water, air and fire, how all that this human being might know of themselves as a gift from the elements around them, and by those elements in the form of others by society, the education, the learning, the print of work, pain of growing, the excitement of succeeding, how society and the environment have shaped this human being through the course of their life. as you breathe in and out, continue to hold this human being in the heart space, the mind space, and see how they are the very continuation of all of their ancestors, their genetic blood family, their adoptive family, their spiritual inheritance from so many beings, and the land and the environment and the peoples thereon. All of their ancestors continue into and form and shape the experience, the happiness and the suffering. The happiness and suffering of past generations is the happiness and suffering of the current one. And See how this human being also through each action of body, speech, and mind sends a continuation of their ancestors on into the future, to their descendants, to their friends, to their land, their home, and the way of life around them, each making a contribution with every thought, every word, every deed, Breathing in and breathing out, I hold in my mind the image of the human being as belonging to all of life, as belonging at home as a part of the planet, as being a part of all manifestation everywhere. Take a few breaths to release that image of a human being. Come to presence and settling in. I like to do meditations like that where I don't have a particular person as an object of my meditation because sometimes I'll get caught on their particularities even myself. You might be tempted when you're doing such a meditation like what, what I just guided to, to see yourself in there or to see someone else in there, right? I like to try to keep my mind focused on sort of a just a, a, a glowing image of a human being, right? It's not really anyone in particular, but to understand all the different threads that are woven together to, to bring that manifestation about, to contemplate, the, the, the way that uh, uh, our family and our friends, our cl- people closest to us really shape who we are, and to see how that moves on, to see how the world around us, society and the environment really comes in and, and forms a human being and, and how through their life they, they send it on into the future. right? This, this kind of work is a work of touching interbeing. It's a work of uh, opening our hearts, Because when we see that the human being is composed in this way, is a part of the life, that means that each one of us, every one of us is a part of life like that. And we can have more ease in opening our hearts to understand, to forgive, to be generous with those around us. If we don't have that ground of interbeing, as a basis for our way of looking at ourselves and others, is very difficult to be generous. Uh, we, we may think we're being generous, but we might actually be twisting it around to try to help ourselves. Right? So we're opening our heart to non-separation. When we do that and we let the insights that arise from those experiences guide our actions. In our life, we act differently. The whole ceremony this morning was an expression of that. When one allows the insight of interbeing, of non-separation, of impermanence, all these lofty words we have in Buddhism, when one allows those energies in and cracks open one's heart, one's actions will be different you will move in a different direction. You will make different choices in your life than you did before, because you have opened that threshold from me, mine, and myself to a deep and non-discriminating love for all. Right. Mm. On the surface, Oh yeah, just just showing you the top of the part of the page first. <laughs> yeah. This is kinda of fun. Laksana is a Sanskrit word which means uh the appearance of things, like a sign, a mark, or the surface of something, the appearance. The outer appearance and form. Laksana. Yeah. So like when you look at the screen uh, in front of you, right, you may see uh, if I'm spotlighted on your video, you see a bigger me, but then on the top, you'll see little ones of everybody else and you can scroll through that. You might think that you're looking at me for a moment because you're entering into a connection with the words I'm speaking and and such, but actually you're looking at a computer screen. (laughs) You're not looking at me, (laughs) right? That's just an appearance. That's a sign. That's a mark. You hear my voice, but actually, what you hear is oh, you're spotlighting. Okay, <laughs> actually, actually, what you hear is the um, uh, the computer itself reproducing it, an, another impression of my voice, right? So these are signs. These are marks. Uh, and, and it's very easy to get caught in the world of signs and marks and think that you're perceiving things as they are, but underneath every sign and every mark, there's something else. Okay, that's the other bottom half of the page. Svabhava. Svabhava is the other word, which is complementary to laksana. Oh, why am I getting so bright? Can we go, do the whole page which refers to the nature or the substance or the meaning behind the surface behind the sign behind the mark so on the other side of your screen i'm not behind your computer right i'm sitting in new hampshire very far away probably right but right there's a reality that is represented by the image on the screen the surface the appearance here, but beneath the appearance is a kind of substance, there's something else. Words are a wonderful way to contemplate Lakshana and Svabhava because a word is a sign, it's a mark, but every word has a meaning. If we're perceptive, we can see the same meaning behind words, but very often we don't. (laughs) We think we do, but we don't. Uh, a red light or a green light at a traffic intersection is a kind of a sign, a mark, for what? The green light? It's its a mark for it should be safe to go now. right? The red light is, please stop or you'll hurt someone. Right? And there's a meaning behind the green and the red light. But only in the context of traffic lights do those meanings apply like that. When you see green somewhere else, it doesn't necessarily mean it's safe to go. It might just mean it's a beautiful leaf. Hmm. So what I guess I'm going for there is, even though we may think we perceive the nature or the substance behind the sign or mark, we might, not actually might be another sign or mark, or maybe we've taken uh, contact with the meaning behind the sign and turned it into another sign. Um, this is called living in the world of representations. And we live in a world of representations a lot. When we live inside our mind, going back here, when we live inside our mind and we don't let the present moment experience in and we just stew around with things in our mind and that becomes the basis for our experience of reality that is representation these are all memories conditioning and possibilities it's just possibility manifesting in our mind it's very real that it's manifesting in our mind but it's not based on reality the collective reality of the world um Laksana and Svabhava can help us to understand the, um, the metaphor of the wave and the water a little bit too, right? And you know the story of the wave and the water. One wave is high, another one's low. One has a, a white cap and the other is nice and round and smooth, right? And they appear differently. They appear to be separate from each other, the different waves. But when you look beneath the surface, from the mark, the sign of the wave on the surface, to the substance underneath, you see it's the same water, the same water that rises up or not into the waves. You see that? This wave here, these almost look like Montana mountains. Gosh, I made them, so I call them water. Um, one wave here is shorter than this wave over here. It might be like, I hate being short. People always look down on me. And this one says, I hate being tall. I always bonk my head, right? And they have their experiences of what they like and what they don't like, and it appears to be different things. But all you gotta do is drop a little bit beneath the surface and you find the water, the water out of which arises all the different waves. We cannot take the water out of the wave or the wave out of the water. If I were to be a wave on the surface of the ocean. And I was rolling along and I'm looking around, and I'm going, hey, look at all these other waves out here, we're really doing our thing. And I look ahead of me and I see something happening. Oh, what's going on up there? And I see row after row of waves in front of me, one after another crashing on the rocky shore. And I go, oh my gosh, that wave just got smashed to bits. And then another one. And another, what, what's going on? I'm being, I'm being drawn in that direction. I can't stop, right? It's like growing old, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so you're being drawn towards the shore, which is a certain doom for the wave and for the wave that believes that they're just a wave. It is certain doom. <laughs> you're going to be smashed into a billion drops of water to be assimilated in other ways and the force of your life will be felt by the rocks and reverberate into the earth, right? Well, that's the life of the wave. It could be exciting, but it also will be very scary because you see that I'm about to end just like all those other waves. But if you're a wave who knows that their nature is also water, then long before you get to shore, You have felt the deep peace already. You have been broken on the shore already a hundred million countless times. You have arisen again countless times far out at sea. When you know as a wave that you are the water, there's no more fear. There's no more hesitation. Your home, your true home has been established. Cross that threshold dive in. If you spend all of your waking hours of your life contemplating what's better, what's worse, what you like, what you don't like, who's in the right and who's in the wrong, and fighting for this against that or defending yourself here against that threat over there, you will be a wave who only knows themselves as a wave. But if you take some time in your life to contemplate your interbeing, to open yourself, your heart and your mind to the deeper truth of who you are under the surface. Drop from laksana down to svabhava, drop from your waveness into your waterness, you begin to find a vast reservoir of peace and stability, from which then you can manifest in countless ways. Now I'm sounding like the avatamsaka sutra again. The wave and the water are also known as relative truth and ultimate truth. They are not separate from each other, but they are very different perceptions, one in the other. In the relative truth, I'm in New Hampshire and you're in Montana, right? Or the other places where we are, (laughs) right? We seem to be in different places. Uh, But in the ultimate truth, right? We're all on the surface of Mother Earth, right? We can step out to that perspective and feel the deep connection that we have sharing the planet. You see how that little shift in perception, and it can change the way you feel. You can feel so far away from your loved ones, so afraid of what they might be experiencing, especially if you know they're sick, suffering, or hurting. You feel that distance when you stay in the realm of the wave. But if you go deep and you practice like that image of the human being meditation, you realize you're already together with your loved ones. You are of the same substance through and through all of your ancestors, all of the elements that comprise your body, all the experiences of society and the world, all the stories of suffering and happiness, they're all shared. And so you turn your mind and your heart, you clear out, you clear, calm down all the the anxiety and the suffering, and you have that deep connection to the raw possibilities of a laya consciousness where where you and your loved one can be the same. With that kind of contemplation, the separation, the distance between you vanishes. The key here is that your heart is open and it's not an intellectual exercise right? You think these thoughts to turn your mind into a pure and beautiful direction, but you don't just stay there. You have to really let them fill you up, really crack open your heart, really release the tension and the tightness of the fear, the agitation you have. And the two truths, relative and ultimate truth, become one, just like the compost and the rose. The whole point of this is opening the heart of love. Right? Not figuring out how the world works. There's a whole chapter, a whole, a whole bit. I'm not going to read it. And in, in that, in that section on the Avatamsaka Sutra I've been, I've been drawing from, there's a whole part in there where it talks about, um, uh, sort of like uh, pointless, uh, pointless exploration of the mind, in a way like things it's really silly to, to try to figure out I, it's like everything <laughs> it, it, it talks it, it mentions so many different things you'd be like that would be so interesting to understand that is this is pointless <laughs> um it's it's trying to point out to us that if we try to figure out the deep meaning of life and of the world and of our purpose and all that from the level of intellect and rationality and the surface of the waves, this thing in relationship to that thing, it's endless, it's pointless. There's no, you can't get there to to the deep resolve, the deep contentment, the deep peace of the understanding which arises in the heart. When the mind grows quiet and the interbeing nature can fill the space. So you use these thoughts. I am made of my ancestors. I am made of my parents. I am the continuation and transformation of they. And so are my loved ones. You use those thoughts to calm your mind and open your heart. And then you let in that space, the deep truth, the ultimate truth of your interbeing nature arise and fill you. This is a spiritualization of love. Mm. Tai used to write a calligraphy. Um, so, uh, some of you probably have seen it. Maybe some of you have it. Uh, Reverence is the nature of my love. I really liked that calligraphy. That saying, "Reverence is the nature of my love," does it speaks to me of the spiritualization of love? that arises from the inside of interbeing and how this changes everything about the way we live our lives, the way we take care of ourselves, the way we take care of each other. So for some of us, uh, love may be... Uh, a result of uh, you know the, the love that we're involved in or that we think the love we're doing, we, it, it might actually have like strong elements of fear in it, attachment, craving, uh, the need to control. Sometimes we are uh, possessed with this intense energy where we have to help other people. <laughs> I have to help you. <laughs> I have to help you. I see that there's suffering. I must help. There's something to be done. I have to do it. Right? I don't think that that's real love. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't come from that open interbeing heart. To help someone driven by a force inside, I must do this. Right? Where does that come from? That requires a little deep looking to understand. It's like uh, maybe there's a neediness actually in us underneath. Like we, we must do that in order to feel well about ourselves so that we don't fail, so that we don't come up short. Well, that's not about the other person. That's not about helping them. That's about helping us not experience failure, right? There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not a spiritualization of our love. Love doesn't see the distinction between ourselves and the other. Love simply flows and moves through that door. So often there are things about our love that uh, are about what we need from the other person, what we like about how the other person makes us feel. That's not about loving them. That's about trying to meet our own needs, right? Through a relationship with them. This could be a loving, intimate, spousal relationship. It could be a work relationship too where you're trying to meet your needs for achievement, for recognition, for, uh, for fame, right, for love. But it's a misinformed approach. It doesn't have as a basis, a deeper understanding of who we truly are. It doesn't have the stability and the freedom of the ultimate dimension as the ground, right, from which then you can express your love Love that comes from this place needs no return, right? You put that letter in the mail and it goes. And whether it arrives or not, it arrives or not. You don't have to say, I better get it back. (laughs) I need a reply, I need a thank you, or else I'm not gonna give you any more, right? (laughs) It's It's not like that, right? The gift of love is a gift. And a gift doesn't require something in return. So like an example of this could be in uh, beginning a new practice. Uh, so in beginning a new practice, we try to refresh and renew our relationship with ourselves, or with another person or with a group of people or an event, or something, right? Maybe with our life. Sometimes on the new year in Plum, uh, Plum Village, in Morning Sun, we do... Uh, beginning a practice practices to refresh our, our direction in life, right, make sure we, we feel clear and good about the way we're going. And uh, so beginning anew can have all those different contexts, but what's important about it are the elements of the practice. And the first element of the practice of beginning anew is flower watering. And Flower watering is where we are able to touch the happiness that's there in the relationship, where we're able to express appreciation and gratitude, Uh, If it's for ourselves, we have to be able to do that with ourselves. If it's for another, we must be able to do it with another. And we do that prior to trying to solve the problems in the relationship. Right? Remember the arms of practice. So there may be suffering in the relationship, and that's going to be part of our practice. But to create a strong condition for embracing and working with that suffering, we're going to cultivate the wholesomeness, the happiness, the joy of life. So flower watering, its intention is to open the door of the heart to the possibility of love, of kindness flowing. So if I don't have practice of interbeing really in my life, if I'm not really opening my heart in that way, I might think about it, I might contemplate it, but I don't really let my heart open in that way. I don't really let it shape me. I might do something like this. I might express to my dear one in beginning anew something like, uh, I super appreciate all the shoulder rubs that you've been giving me lately because they've been helping me so much, right? And that might make the other person feel good about the fact that they've given you a bunch of shoulder rubs and you feel better, right? (laughs) But listen to that. Like, I really, I really appreciate what you've done for me, right? That's the kind of expression I might make if I wasn't sitting on the ground of interbeing, but instead was seeing myself and the other and trying to negotiate and navigate skillfully between me and you, right? Um, There are other things I might say too, but just as an example, which is different from me saying, dear friend, the kindness and compassion that you show in your way of living really inspires me. In a selfish way, when you rub my shoulders, I get some of that, but I also see it like the phone calls you make to your mom on the weekends, how you really reach out that extra effort, or that time we stopped on the side of the road and you lifted the body of the dead animal out of the travel lane and and buried it in the grass, right? That's an expression I might be giving if I were looking from that place of the kindness and the compassion that are coming through this being into the world are so important, which is different from the kindness and the compassion that you give to me. It's so important, see? I'm, my, my, my gaze is turned outwards and it, and it invites a different kind of virtue in the other person instead of this i do what i do to help you to help me it's we are invited onto the great wide path of awakening which is for the benefit of all beings interbeing makes that invitation when i can touch my true nature the ultimate dimension. When my heart can be open and fulfilled, I know that I have a home in life. If you have a home in life, is there somewhere else that you might like to go? Right? Does that question sit? Okay. I know I'm in a Dharma talk, you're not supposed to respond, you're just supposed to see like, get, like, let it, let, the, let the images flow in, but right? If I am at home in life, if I'm a part of the, all of the stream of life, is there somewhere else I want to go? Is there something else I need to do? Right? That doesn't make any sense. If I were disconnected from life, if I were caught in the agitation and stories of my mind and not able to open my heart to my true nature, then I got needs. Then I've got to go places Then I have to do things. In Buddhism, we say, but you strive in your practice, you open that door to interbeing, to non-separation, right? This crossing the moat, breaking into the enemy's citadel. What needs to be done has been done. What needs to be accomplished has been accomplished. It means you come to a place of deep ease and peace in your relationship to the deep truth of life. And it's such a mystery and it's so all-encompassing That there's nowhere else you want to go and nothing else you have to do. It doesn't mean that you don't go anywhere or you don't do anything, but it means you're not pushed or pulled by something incomplete inside of you, by something unresolved, but instead you can just lift yourself out of that place in true love, kindness, and compassion for the world and act from there. It's a spiritualization of love. I've tasted this a lot through my practice, and it's grown very wonderfully for me. I love to rely on that ground. I do get caught and lost in my relative dimension, my relative truths, and I go up and down on the waves. But the practice is strong enough for me now that I can really take refuge in that deeper place. Uh, An example of that for me years ago that was really striking was when my my first child, Lorien, when he was an infant, maybe three weeks old or so, two or three weeks old, very tiny. He's now an inch taller than me. Yeah, he's a big guy now, (laughs) but he was so tiny when he was two or three weeks old. And I have this really clear memory. I used to walk him a lot. So I'd just hold him in my arms and I'd walk him. We lived in this old house that was built in 1772 or something like that, in Temple, New Hampshire. And I'd walk around these big rooms in the house just holding him. It was midsummer, it was very hot, and so it wouldn't be pleasant for him to be out and too long, so I was often inside walking, holding him up to my chest, wrapping this love that I felt for this little being in my arms, walking, walking, walking. This is not meant to make you think that you should have children, by the way. Um, so walking, walking, walking with him, I felt so connected, so whole, so complete. And I brought him away from my body for a second. And I looked at his face and he was sleeping. I just dropped his head back a little in my hand. And I said, I whispered to him, you complete me. I was looking at his face. He didn't move. He just kept sleeping. So I was like, ah, that would've been cool if he had responded in some way. He just kept sleeping. And I was like, what am I saying? (sighs) What am I saying to this little baby? You complete me. He's gonna grow up with this like complex of like, like without, without him performing in a certain way or doing a certain thing, his dad's gonna be unhappy without him being who he is, like, oh my gosh. I was like, oh, I don't want that. I was like, you, comp- why, why do you complete me? Am I incomplete? It was this wonderful koan that just emerged like out of this sense of total rapture and connection. And I suddenly was shocked into that the truth of what I was experiencing was my separation, right? How could my child complete me only if I'm incomplete? There's no other way. And there's part of me that still believed in that moment that I was incomplete. (sighs) So holding him still, I said, I don't want that to be the transmission that I'm giving to my child. I want him to know what it's like, because I have tasted it, to really dive into the waters of the ultimate dimension. I took those deep breaths and I really collected myself back into that place. And I, I let my practice of mindfulness fill me up, present moment, wonderful moment, breathing in and breathing out. Why is the present moment a wonderful moment? Why is the present moment such a fabulous thing? Why does Tai call it the only moment, right? Because it has the power, the possibility to fill us completely, to take away all our needs and desires, all our striving, all our anxiety and fear. Instead of sitting in here going, I'm incomplete, I need something to complete me, I open my senses and I calm my mind and I let the beauty of the world stream through. And as it streamed through from the outside to the inside, the mirror of all the potential that could be was there. They call this in Buddhist psychology, the great mirror wisdom. When your sense of self in your mind becomes clear enough that Alaya consciousness at the base can reflect the grandeur of the world above, right? And doesn't get all twisted up in your mind and your grabbing and your attachments. And I breathed like that for a few minutes because I was like, this is where I wanna be. And I saw the stream of ancestry flowing through and I felt, no, no, Lorien is a part of this stream of ancestry. But we are already complete, right? Lorien is a part of this earth, but the earth is already whole, right? That doesn't mean he's extra, <laughs> discardable, right? It's not that, right? But the experience is already whole and complete. I put my faith and my trust, put my confidence in that. Hmm. Then he stirred, That was the cool part. (laughs) Then he responded. I was like, oh yeah, okay. You are here, whole and beautiful and complete as you are. I am here, whole and beautiful and complete as I am. Yes, I suffer, yes, I slip, yes, I fall. And you will suffer, you will slip, you will fall. But we are compost and rose together, right? And it's already full and complete. Mm, It's a wonderful place to be and to dwell. And then your love can come forth with so much more freedom, with purity, instead of your neediness and your fear, which becomes jealousy, which becomes vengeance, which becomes anger, which becomes control. right? All of that can be undone with the inside of interbeing, all of it. Go back to the ceremony of the five mindfulness trainings or the 14 mindfulness trainings. And next time there's a recitation, really listen deeply to those words. Not just the words in the trainings, but the words describing the trainings at the beginning of the ceremony. The words at the end of the ceremony describing the the, the experience. It's all so clear in there that this way of practice has the potential, right? It has the potential, if we allow it to, to heal all the different sufferings that we have. But we gotta do it. (laughs) Can't just say, I just want the roses. The roses come with the compost. Well, I just like the compost. Nope, compost comes with roses. You have to also have your joy. (laughs) There were times in my practice, uh, especially when I wandered a little bit into um, exploring different parts of my life that were not plum villagey, There have been times in my practice where I have questioned the teachings that Thay would give so readily on Sangha, the community of practice, and the emphasis that he would place on the community of practice. It's hard to be a community of practice. It really is because it challenges us to no end to go deeper and deeper into ourselves, into our interconnections, and the sharing of all of our stories of suffering and joy, right? But if we do it skillfully, it can be a wonderful thing. Your community in Montana has had wonderful, skilled Sangha builders. So you have a lot of stability there. It's wonderful. But there were times when I thought, oh yeah, not so much about Sangha. Let's, let's go here, let's go there. But I always I am returning again and again. And now more than ever, to how important it is to be together with other people on the path. If you find yourself lost, it's probably because you haven't been hanging out with your Sangha. Groups of people that practice mindfulness, practice deep looking, opening their hearts with interbeing, holding their suffering with care watering seeds of joy with enthusiasm. Groups of people who do that, they don't get lost. There's always a path before them. There's always a way to go. So if you found yourself lost, lost, it may be that you have lost touch with your sangha. The sangha is, is never exclusive. It's never gonna say, you left, you can't come back, right? Unless there is a skillful reason for such a relationship that actually helps us to grow, uh, which does happen. But as long as the practice is our clear intention, when we come to the Sangha, right, to open our hearts, to spiritualize our love, as long as that's our clear intention, the Sangha is going to be happy that we're there. Because we will be contributing to the work of caring with these two arms of the practice and carrying each other. So come to the Sangha for support and for refuge when you need, but come to the Sangha too when you don't need support and refuge. That's how it grows. It is the most noble task. I'm really emphasizing this here at the end of this talk and this retreat, because of all the the distance we've been forced to have from each other over the last year. And it might be possible for some of us to slip and fall away because we haven't experienced the enthusiasm and the joy and the depth and the meaning that come from practicing in the same room with other practitioners but there's an incredible vitality which is brought into the world when we come together. And we need to keep that alive. The lineage of awakening depends on it. It's not something that the monks and nuns are going to do in Plum Village for you. Right? We do it for them. They do it for us. Right? If we don't do it, they'll lose it. So, uh, please, come with full energy to your sanghas, contributing all of your love and insight and energy, as much as you can. Of course, from time to time, someone needs to step away for whatever reason, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for several years. But whenever the conditions allow, please turn up, please show up because our, our togetherness in practice is so important for the world. The kind of non-discriminative love that we can generate in the Sangha is a powerful healing force. All of the social uh, unrest and social action opportunities we have in our world right now, they desperately need our practice of non-discriminative love.